I'm Jean-Philippe Courtois, JP. This is Positive Leadership, the podcast that helps you grow as an individual, a leader, and ultimately, as a global citizen. When children read for fun, they learn vocabulary, which helps them express their emotions and their thoughts that are inside their brains. They learn about other cultures and communities, and this builds in them empathy and understanding of others, even if they disagree. And thirdly, you read about the heroes and the heroines, and so you draw the confidence and the courage to be the hero yourself. One of the questions that I'm often asked is how to instill a I can mindset so that people can take control of their lives, futures and communities, and develop solutions to the problem that they face. Ronald Adjani, my guest today, has developed a simple and effective way to do just that by fostering a love of reading in kids. Rana is one of the world's leading Muslim women scientists. Professor Malika Balaji at the Hashemite University of Jordan, she's partnering research into the impact of trauma across generations. She's also the founder of the NGO We Love Reading, which has set up more than 4,000 libraries in a diverse range of communities, including refugee camps. I was really excited to have her on the podcast to find out more about how she's driving change at the local level. I think you come from a big family, eight siblings, and you are the eldest in the family. So you had a formative experience of leadership, and I could imagine that. I'd like to start off by asking you about those early years and the feeling of responsibility you have today. I read a cut where you said, everyone is a guardian. What counts is to try. Every little deed counts. So tell me more about that idea, where it comes from, and why it's so important to you, Rana. Well, that, that's a combination of actually two quotes from Prophet Muhammad. And the first one is about everyone is a guardian. So we are all responsible, not just for ourselves, but for our circle around us. That starts with your family, mm. your neighborhood, and your wider community. And that we need to have that sense of belonging and sense of responsibility to identify the problems around us and come up with solutions to solve them. The second part of this is that you may identify a problem, and that's easy. All of us mm-hmm. identify problems all the time, and we complain. Easy. But not all of us take the next step, which is coming up with a solution and executing it. And that's where the second quote comes in, uh, which is that, do not belittle any good deed. It, so it's about starting small. You don't have to worry about changing the world. You don't have to think, oh, my God, this is too much. It's overwhelming. Just think, what can I do today? And I think I grew up in a family where those principles and values were practiced, not just preached, from both my mother and my father. And I think that spilled over into my everyday life within my wider community and the different circles I've been uh, working in over the years. I love that philosophy, right? In many ways, I mean, it, it connects well with the, the third circle, positive leadership, when you think about the way we can change the world. And I think like you, because when I talk to kids, youth in particular, sometimes, you know, they are very much intimidated by the, I mean, the huge challenges facing the world, right? Whatever it is in terms of war, in terms of uh, poverty, in terms of environment, climate change and more. And they kind of forget about the little thing they can actually do every single day of their lives. So... I love it because I think that's so important in terms of day-to-day behaviors. I think you have a very deeply Muslim faith and also a passion for science that motivates you to study to become a scientist, even after being married and having 
for children. So how have those two core aspects shape your outlook and who you are, uh, Rana? So um, maybe starting with science. So I grew up in a household where we were encouraged to ask questions and to be curious. So I think that is what led me to become a scientist, to push the boundaries of discovery and the unknown. I would have loved maybe to be a discoverer, go out to space, but that wasn't uh, something I could do. So I could at least go into a cell and try to understand how yeah. the molecules, the DNA works or, or the proteins interact. And so be on that uh, frontier, so to speak. Now, how do I balance that with being a mother? So I did not get the chance to, to pursue being a scientist and get my PhD early on, according to the yeah. traditional pathway. Uh, so actually, yeah. after I, I finished college, uh, because there was no PhD programs in Jordan, I became a school teacher for 10 years. Mm. And I got married and had my four children. And I think those 10 years were so important retrospectively in shaping how I understand education, how I understand yeah. the other important roles that we don't unfortunately highlight when we talk about careers. We don't talk about being a parent, whether you're a mother or a father. Although that is the most important role you any human being can do. Uh, and so to me, um, having that balance between the, those different roles and, in, and not just separating, but actually interweaving them together. So when I'm in the lab, I bring in my kids. They know everything I do. Yeah. They understand all the research. And actually, they're very smart when you think about it. Hmm. Um, they're full of curiosity. So I share with them my data and ask them, what do you think? And, and they give me very insightful and wise comments. And, yeah, but at the yeah. same time, this not only enriches my science, but it also allows my children to be part of my life and to inspire them and to be a role model to them. And to when I'm in my lab, they think, oh, so mama's using our uh, hypotheses in her research. So, so the, this, this is important to involve your family and, and for it to be a, you know, a holistic approach in your life and not to separate your life because you need their support in the end and their inspiration. What's immediately obvious to me speaking to Rana is that she's someone with an incredible curiosity. Her mother is from Syria, her father is Palestinian. And because of her background and because Jordan is her country that has experienced multiple waves of refugees, one thing she's always been interested in is the question of how people's experiences affect them. Not just in terms of their mental health, but in terms of their biology. Is it really impacting their DNA? Is it changing how their DNA is expressed, which genes are turned on and off? And even to ask further the question, can those changes be transferred across generations? And this is the science of epigenetics. And so because of the intimate knowledge of the history and the culture and the connection with the communities involved, I was able to design a very elegant experiment where we could actually compare three generations of women who had been either exposed to yeah. trauma in 1980 because of a massacre that happened in Syria or not exposed or only the daughter was exposed. And to answer the question, does the impact of trauma on gene expression, can it be really transmitted? Now, this question is still in the, in the making. Yes. We're analyzing the data as we speak, so stay tuned for next year. However, I want to add here that most studies on impact of trauma always comes with a negative tone. How does it impact stress and anxiety? And, and how does it produce the negative effects? Yeah. And what we want to do different and what we're doing is can we look at it in a positive way? So not to celebrate war. Actually, we are against war and we need to address the core reasons for war happening in the first place and hold those accountable for it. Yes. However, yes. 
dealing with the realities on the ground, can we give back dignity to those people who have gone through this and appreciate how they have survived and thrived? And so look at positive attitudes, well-being, resilience, and what are those programs that can help even boost that more? And so that's what we're doing different because we, I come from that community and we want to own that and celebrate it. So let's open this chapter of your life, which is all about real love reading. And I think it started with a homecoming. When you returned to Jordan after spending five years abroad studying for your PhD in molecular biology, and you saw your country, I think, with new eyes. So explain to us, to our listener of the podcast, what is it that you noticed and why you felt this was something you needed to change? When we change environments, uh, we come back, we see things that we appreciate, and we see things that we think, mm, yeah. we could change that, right? Yeah. In every, in every yeah. culture, in every community and society. And that's yes. when I noticed children don't read for fun in Jordan. But then I realized it's all over the world. <laughs> it's not even, uh, you know, yeah. it's not uh, restricted to a, a particular region. But all over the world, we have sectors of the community where children don't read for fun. They know how to read. They read for purposes of education or work or religion or politics, but not for mm-hmm. fun. So, so I think that's what, um, let's say, piqued my feeling of responsibility. And then that led to the next question. So how do they help children fall in love with reading? And I discovered it's about a role model. It's not about books. It's about having a role model who enjoys reading herself or himself and reads aloud to the children, your own children or the children around you. And that's what's lacking around the world. And, and that's why our children don't read for fun. And so to, to for my own conscience, I thought I'm going to gather the kids in my own neighborhood and read aloud to them once a week. At least now I can sleep, whether it's going to work or not, whether I'm going to succeed or not, doesn't matter. But at least I tried. That's where I started. And I I gathered the children and I wanted a public space where all the kids would come. And in my neighborhood, there's a mosque. And I thought, why don't I read in the mosque? It's a public space. It's got a carpet, a bathroom. And I involved my kids and my husband and the whole, you know, community. And in 2006, February 2006, uh, we, I started reading aloud to the children books in their native language. That's very important because that's how you fall in love. And from the local culture and about real people, you know, the child who wants to run away, the child who picks his nose. The kids love that because it reminds them of their imperfection. And that's what we need, right? To be real. And from there, the We Love Reading program uh, evolved and blossomed. And now it's in 65 countries around the world. Runners We Love Reading program trains volunteers to read to kids. They call them ambassadors. They can be anybody over the age of 16, men or women, and it's up to them where the session will take place. It could be a mosque, it could be a church under a tree, and each session normally lasts about half an hour. That's it. It's a very low-key intervention. Rana was motivated to set up Wheel of Reading because of a gut instinct. But right from the very beginning, she approached it like a scientist. In the same way, she would do an experiment. As a scientist, Rana was really focused on measuring the impact of Wheel of Reading. So she invited scholars and scientists from around the world, from Harvard, from Yale, from the University of London, experts in education, psychology, to come and study the program. Their findings are nothing short of incredible. 
First, on the children, we were able to show that the children's executive functions, such as working memory, emotional regulation, all improved, which makes them do better at school on the long run. We also showed that their emotional perception after being driven towards the negative because of emotional stress and trauma, especially among refugee children, all improved and became more positive as a result of being engaged with We Love Reading. And especially... Uh, for the those who come from a lower socioeconomic uh, community. And this is important when we design programs, right? We want to make sure that we have a simple program that can improve the social and economic uh, status of the children in the future by investing early on. And it's not just the kids who are reaping the benefits from the program. The adults who are also reading to the kids, the ambassadors, are transformed as well their uh, relational salience with the children they read to and the community they engage in as a result of their activities all increased. And this led to their increased feeling of happiness and their increased well-being, all uh, mediated through a motivation to lead that was triggered by that relationship importance with the children. Uh, We also showed that uh, their mental health improved, their resilience increased, and their stress and anxiety was reduced. We also looked at the relationship between the parent and the child, right, driven through the child in the family. Uh, And we showed that that relationship all improved between the parent and the child, which resulted in empowerment of both parent and child, uh, not just for education, but mental health. And maybe one last thing I will say, finally, I've been able to marry my biology with my social entrepreneurship because now we are studying the impact of We Love Reading on epigenetics, of the children and their parents to see, can that intervention, that low-key intervention, really make a difference in their DNA uh, and and to sustain it over time? Let's dig more into the the details of the way you you shape that program. I think it's very interesting, uh, Rana, I found myself. With your scientific mind, as you said, I mean, you... You've been building a, uh, a program from scratch, and uh, it was an experiment at the beginning, and then it became a program, it became something big and huge. Can you tell us more about the way you thought about the experiment? Was it about, I don't know, testing, tests, 15, 20 sessions first with so many kids, getting feedback, formal, informal, <laughs> picking the books? Uh, I mean, there are so many variables, right, as, as a scientist you could test on. <laughs> so how did you shape that experiment? to make it more relevant to and to test the idea. This was not done by, I sat at a table with experts and we designed a fantastic program. No, using the scientific background of mine, I was documenting everything. Yeah. Uh, doing, you know, trying different, uh, brainstorming with my kids, the neighborhood, the people engaged, the parents. It was about trial and error. And that way, the program evolved to address a lot more, and this is my learning from this, is when they're designed by the people who are suffering from it, they know better the solution because they understand better the root cause, but also they build a solution that is sustainable and owned uh, rather than something coming in from uh, outside. Why would I buy into it? And if somebody brought it to me, I would hold them responsible to make it happen, not myself. No, thanks so much. I think it's uh, so insightful to learn from the inside, actually the way you shape uh, such an initiative as an entrepreneur. I mean, you, you, you could have ignored at the time what a social entrepreneur was, but actually you acted as a social entrepreneur. <laughs> and, and you did it by basically learning, building a solution with, uh, with the, the stakeholders, I mean, themselves, the people uh, who are building and shaping the solution by themselves. So after three years, Rana, you receive a grant which enabled you to create a training program 
get business training and scale up with overeating. And as you said, today, I think it has expanded to over 60 countries around the world and more. So uh, I love to understand, because myself, I'm also doing some social enterprise work. I'm also fascinated about how do you measure the impact it's having, right? <laughs> and I'm sure it's not just about the number of kids who, who attend the sessions. It's not just about the ambassadors who are reading as well, which is important. But it must be probably about the transformational impact that it's having on the lives of the people in the community. So could you share with us one or two examples of wonderful stories of women, moms, or even men, maybe in communities, transformed by Wheel of Reading and the way that changed their lives and that changed their, those communities? Absolutely. We have thousands of stories, but I'm going to choose one. Um, so one of them, her name is Asma. Uh, she is a Syrian from uh, Dara, uh, and she moved to Jordan uh, and settled in the Zaatari camp at the beginning of the 2011 crisis in Syria. Uh, she had never finished school, married young, which is the tradition in the villages, and she had two children when she came. Uh, she had just had a miscarriage, was feeling very down, you know, and not having any hope for the future, yeah. not knowing what's going to happen. And this, this, um, you know, uh, ambiguity and not knowing what's going to happen is devastating, mm. right? Because you don't have control over your future. So we, uh, this was 2014. And I had, uh, for the first time, went to Zaatari to run the training program in Zaatari, where she was. And I, and she attended the training. It was a two-day training. She went home with a bag of books and started implementing the program, running it herself in the camp. So gathered the children, started reading aloud to them these wonderful stories from their everyday uh, culture. And slowly, Esma rediscovered herself. Uh, suddenly, she had a purpose, an easy purpose. Her husband loved it. He was supporting her, helping her in everything, telling her, I'll take care of the kids. You go do the reading, uh, giving her tips on how to reach out to the neighbors to invite their children to come. Uh, so it became her family project. But more so, she started having the confidence as a result of this relationship with the children and seeing how they look at her and how the families look at her to thinking, oh, my God. Um, so she started writing stories for children. Uh, she was invited by the local Zaatari magazine in the camp to write a short essay, which she did. Then she got invited to become a teacher by Save the Children. And she said, but I, I never finished school. And they said, it doesn't matter. You have the talents of gathering children, knowing what to do with them. And Esma transformed. And it's her. It's not the program. The program was just the catalyst, right? The trigger. And Esma actually uh, recently got transferred as a refugee. Now she's in France. And guess what she did as soon as she set foot in Paris? She started reading aloud. She gathered the children and started reading aloud to them. So Esma is a powerhouse and is an example of how every human being uh, has the potential to, to find themselves. And it doesn't have to be that you're, you become a fancy or famous person, right? It's about finding yourself, setting your own path, and being true to that. And that, I think, is you know, defining success the way you want it. Every human being has potential. You need that trigger. Something that gives you trust in yourself, confidence in yourself. And that's what happened to Esma when she took part in the program. She was changed on a profound level. I'm actually really interested in, in the way you talk and you've been developing some very unique, positive and leadership skills, uh, Rana, through your program initiative. You know, recently I had uh, Reshma Sojani on a podcast. She's the founder of Girls Who Code. And, uh, and through that organization, she has enabled women and girls to be more ambitious, 
with their goals and realize their potential. Uh, so this is where I can see some parallels, of course, what you're doing. As you know, I'm also a strong believer in the opportunity for everyone to become a positive leader. You don't need to be a CEO. <laughs> you can be a mom. You can be a, in, in, a, in, a, in a school, a teacher. You can be a positive leader. I think the great work you've done empowering and transforming thousands of moms across the world to become more than family leaders, but actually community leaders is very inspiring. So I'd love you to share the learning you had along the way in identifying and nurturing some unique set of soft skills. What are those unique skills that you've been developing, enabling, revealing uh, through that program? And, uh, you know, maybe taking the example of this now you discussed and others, what is that uh, unique value and force coming through that uh, development, actually? What I have discovered through the development of this program and leading it and listening and interacting and learning from the different women, particularly in the program, as well as men, from different age groups and different backgrounds and cultures across the world, uh, is that what, what we all need as human beings is to uh, have um, the confidence in ourselves, to trust ourselves and trust our gut feelings and go forward. And, and, and what I have discovered is that any program, all it has to do to be successful is to focus on that. How do you unleash that intrinsic motivation? How do you remove the barriers uh, for that intrinsic motivation, that autonomy yes. to flourish? Then you will succeed in whatever program you are designing, whether it's about social change, business, yep. Education, and as we go forward into the 21st century with all the unknowns, mm. right, with technology, all the hype about what is the education that we are uh, giving our children for the future, because we don't even know what their jobs yes. are going to look yeah. like, what yeah. are their challenges. So it's about fostering in them curiosity, critical thinking skills, and that feeling of autonomy, which is Ancient, it's how we survived as a yeah, species yeah. to start with, right? That's how we survived as a species, just to reclaim that. And when you do that, then you become a powerhouse and you become a change maker in every circle you are in. And imagine everybody becoming a change maker, yeah, <laughs> right? And so from the, so that's yes. what I've learned from Wheel yeah. of Reading. And that's what I keep telling different, uh, whether you are experts wanting to design yeah. a program from an academic point of view, because many programs are designed that way, or you are an international NGO having mm -hmm. in staff in house trying to design a program. I tell them, if you don't incorporate this autonomy I mean, yeah. as a core uh, principle of any design, you, will, you, you cannot design a program that will be picked up, that is sustainable, that is successful, yeah. that has an, a real impact. And I call it our secret sauce or the magic of We Love Reading. <laughs> so we, we tell everybody, all you need to do is sprinkle a little bit of that magic. And, and that's what led me to rethink mm. even all the other aspects of, uh, yes. of leadership. Yes. How do you redesign yeah. taking this autonomy as a central principle? I think what you just said is it goes beyond uh, just self-confidence. Self-confidence is a starting point, right? I mean, to at least believe in yourself <laughs> and, and providing a supporting environment where people, kids, moms, whatever, are being valued for their strengths, their talents, what they can bring to the world. But then it's actually about enabling them. Americans would say empower, which is a very different, different, difficult word to translate into many other languages, I find. At least in French, it's very hard. There's no there translation to empower, right? But to give that autonomy, to give that autonomy to people, 
so that they can actually achieve more by themselves with the best version of themselves. And that's so powerful indeed, because I believe like you, Rana, this is the, the core fabrics of a change maker. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a secret sauce for sure. You know, you and I were discussing recently, uh, because uh, you're obviously very much uh, interested by technology as well. And just a, a couple of a few, a couple of months back, we've seen the emergence of large AI models and this uh, incredible, fancy, exciting chat GPT <laughs> that is being used by millions of people in the world. And when you think about chat GPT as an example, and you think about the future of we love reading, what does it mean? <laughs> what does it say? What does it tell you in terms of that program or the future of that program? Having that actually independent agent assisting you maybe to read, maybe to do more things, to do a lot more, actually. So uh, the way you foster uh, that critical thinking is by reading. Reading aloud with a human being so that you're listening and you're interacting, you're playing with those words in your mind, and then you're throwing them back and having a conversation and a dialogue and realizing the boundaries and the limitations and, and exploring. So that's a, that's a social engagement, a social process that's based on physical, reading a book and being with a, with a person, uh, doing it. So that's how you foster the critical thinking. And that's the core of real of reading, right? We don't, we, 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 we refuse, we, we, we focus on real books because we want that human-human interaction, especially in young children. But then when you fall in love with reading and you've got that in you, you can read anywhere and anything. You could read off a screen. You could read off a tablet. You could read the chat GPT uh, things that they're right. It doesn't matter because you've, you have that inside you. And that's why we use technology in the way we want and not let technology to determine how we use it. And that leads to speaking up, right? And not just following every trend and every fancy thing, but to take a step back, reflect, and and having trust in your confidence in yourself and saying your opinion, which is part of critical thinking, that you have an opinion, to, to be able to form an opinion, and then to have the confidence to say your opinion, even if it means you may be wrong, and that's okay. That's how you learn, right? If you keep it to yourself, you're never going to learn. And you may be right. And that's important because you will help others speak up. And that's part of saying the truth and engaging in these conversations. Uh, but most importantly, not to be afraid to make a mistake, right? And I tell my students and, and uh, people, it's okay to make a mistake. So long as don't repeat the same mistake, make a new mistake <laughs> so we can learn together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> So clearly, early 2023, uh, even with ChatGPT, we need to love reading even more <laughs> <True>. together <laughs> and loudly. Now, I'd like to shift gears a little bit, uh, Ryan, and discuss, discuss systems, systemic change, actually. You know, last year I got, uh, as a guest, the wonderful person, B. Drayton from Ashoka, the founder of Ashoka, who gives a great definition of systemic change. He describes it as the result of letting go of control of an ID and enabling and encouraging others to join in and implement the change. So how are you thinking yourself about systemic change? What is it you would love to achieve, not only for the millions of moms and kids in the world through uh, We Love Reading, but also for the hundreds of millions of refugees across the world? I know that's a big question, but here comes the time for a big, big question indeed for you, Rana. 
Uh, absolutely. But big questions sometimes have simple solutions, right? Love it. <laughs> In science, right? In science, the best discoveries were the simplest ones. For me, uh, I, I went on a mm. journey of, of, of uh, learning, evolving, and changing in how I perceive the world and how I perceive myself mm. in the world and within the world. Going from, uh, I want to make a difference in the world and coming up with a solution and implementing it and testing it and then uh, trying to spread it, to learning what does that really mean, right? And uh, how do you achieve that impact that you want to share? As uh, as Bill said, how do you let go of a of a solution and give the opportunity yep. for others to take it up and own it as themselves? But I want to go beyond that, not just to own the solution that I came up with. I want them to be change makers yep. themselves. So so it's not about scaling. And and if we want to talk about scaling, I would say scaling the mindset change. Uh, not scaling a program or, or a particular uh, set of knowledge. No, you, all you need to make sure that you're scaling the mindset and then you let it go. That way it's open. The potential is uh, in infinite. And so then I start asking, how do you achieve yes. that goal? And work towards that goal. To me, that's systems change, right? Because that way, if every person becomes a change maker, then you've solved yeah. all the problems. Because the problems are always going to happen. It's not that you solve all the problems today and you're going to all go yeah. home and we're done. Tomorrow, there's going to be a whole new set. So then how do you mm. keep solving? Uh, and as a scientist, I always like to develop solutions that are sustainable, that do not need my input continuously because yeah, I am yeah. finite, right? And so instead of me uh, propagating the solution, I shift that, that's a system change, every to every being, human yes. being around the world. And then you let it go. I love Rana's philosophy and admire ambition. She's had a huge amount of success with Wheel of Reading by changing as well the minds of refugees and displaced people affected by trauma. So how about changing the attitudes and the mindsets of those in the host countries? How can we change the way they think about refugees? Whether you're talking about a refugee or a person in a host community, in the end, they're human beings. Yeah. And and if you also think as you design interventions and programs from the minute a person is displaced, becomes a refugee, when humanitarian yeah. aid comes in, and then later as they become refugees for 17 years and hence going into development, right? There's that gray area between humanitarian and development now. And then leading into being part of the host community and how do you integrate or assimilate within that community, that spectrum. In every step, mm. you need to have that principle that I am yeah. designing, that they are designing, not I am designing. They should be, mm. we should give them the autonomy to design for autonomy. themselves together. Yes. So at every stage. Mm. And if you have that principle, then you will have addressed that challenge in a very simple way by shifting mm. the, the responsibility to the people themselves. It's a big mm. step, but it, you know what it requires? It requires trust. And that's one yes. thing we don't have enough of, of trusting each other and trusting human beings. And in this context, trusting refugees to know what is better, to trust them as humans that they want to work. We want to work together as host communities yep. and refugees, that we're in this together. We want to help each other. So to me, the most important value here is trust. Trust, building that trust as a foundation to, to do more together. Well, almost coming to an end, just the last couple of questions, uh, Rana. One is about one of your books, uh, Five Scarves where you describe yourself as wearing five scarves, right? Those of a mother, of a teacher, 
a scientist, social entrepreneur, and feminist as well. So can you tell and share us which scarf do you enjoy wearing the most? Or is it actually more, is it actually more the combination of the five that generate your energy and positivity that I can feel? I mean, through this team screen and through your voice and your expression, I can feel the positive energy all the time. So what is the magic sauce of Rana? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I don't separate uh, okay. these roles. The, to me, they're all intertwined. Uh, they go back and forth and they draw from each other inspiration, right? When one part of your life, you could encounter a, a, a challenge, it's frustrating. Another part of it steps in and inspires you and makes you forget the whole <laughs> world and so on. So to me, they're all intertwined. Uh, we're humans. We're not divided into silos. That's part of modernity, yeah. putting us into you know, silos or nations or disciplines. And I think what we know is that we need to all put together. that all together. Yep. Like you're cooking, yep. cooking, and, and now a beautiful <laughs> smell and, and taste will come out of it that will help us all. I think what really uh, inspires me and moves me is, is being with mm. other people, uh, learning from them, listening to them, engaging yep. with them, and re realizing that there's so much I don't know, we don't know. And, but that's amazing because that means that every day is a new day. Every day there's something amazing and wonderful and inspiring and enthralling that's going to happen. I feel it's like a yeah. roller coaster, right? That thrill, that kick you get. And, and I, and that comes, where does that come from? I think it comes because I'm very optimistic. I'm yeah. a positive person. And I would say that positivity, that optimism comes from mm. reading a lot. <laughs> I want to go back okay. to reading because, uh, yeah, it opens the whole, yes. you, you know, yeah. through reading, you discover yeah. your inner potential and you discover the potential of the world. Uh, and that's why I believe it's a crime for a child not to grow up loving to read, to discover all that and, uh, and go forward. I have a very last question for you, though. <laughs> what is your aspiration with this new chapter of your life? And, and what is the change you want to enable in the world uh, you know, that you, you would feel so grateful about? You know, at, at stages in your life, you feel you, you know where you are, what are you, yeah. where are you going, and, and you're in control. And then you go into stages where yeah. that's gone. And COVID, I think, 19 and what we all went through globally was one of those experiences that we can oh, relate yes. across the world, across humanity. Uh, it was a very humbling uh, experience, leveling the playing field for everyone around the world. For me, that, that shifted the ground from under me and making me reevaluate, reassess where am I in, mm. in this world? What, am I, what do I want to do really? Uh, having achieved what I've achieved, yeah. right? What's next? And what I suddenly saw, going from a scientist, a leader, a social entrepreneur, very clear-cut mm. paths, I shifted. And that's when I thought about mm. systems change, about how can I use my insights and learnings that we discussed through this hour to help engage others with these learnings, these insights that I bring to the mm -hmm. world, yep. the world table, because of the unique perspective, being uh, a human being first, um, being a female, being from a different uh, culture, an Arab, mm -hmm. being a Muslim, but more important, uh, being yep. a scientist, being a mother, uh, you know, talking about all these things that I share with 
8 billion mm. people around the world, or even more now, right? Uh, in different ways. So some I share uh, some qualities and others I share another quality. So I bring this to the table to because most of the time, the systems we see around us have been led by certain cultures yeah. and certain yeah. uh, people. And it's time, again, COVID taught us that we will not be able to succeed and thrive as, as, a, yeah. as a species if we don't include yeah. everyone in this conversation. And along with that, came with a, a, a very deep humbleness of, you know, the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. This deep humbleness of, I want to learn from others. So having that openness and that comfortable with the uncomfortable, comfortable with change, is I think part of that journey that I am going through and that I envision continuing till the end. And that's what makes life so amazing and wonderful. Uh, I would like to end with one thing from science. I like to use the chaos theory in physics, which is called the butterfly effect. The theory says when a butterfly flutters its wings in one part of the world, it moves the air a centimeter, but there are there's a hurricane that results beyond time and space. And so I envision every human being is like a butterfly, making a little change, but will have an impact beyond time and space that they can imagine. So be the butterflies. <laughs> Being open to change, open to new opportunities is key if you want to flourish and grow. And one way to encourage that is to read for pleasure, to use art and culture to explore different ideas and perspectives. It doesn't matter how old you are. The butterfly effect teaches us that small things matter. Rana's journey as a social entrepreneur began with a hunch, but her impact has been enormous. And what's really striking is the way Rana built up the program. Coming at it with her scientific mind and including the stakeholders in the design process right from the beginning. She built it incrementally, in a holistic way. That's a program should be designed. Well, Dr. Rana Dajani, thank you so much for having this wonderful conversation, insightful, inspiring conversations, and re-encouraging us to keep working ourselves to reinvent the way we can actually become a change maker one at a time. Thank you so much again. I enjoy a lot of our conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. We've been listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with me, Jean-Philippe Courtois. We are really grateful for your comments, review, and feedback, so please keep it coming. And do subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already. Until the next episode, goodbye.